Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We uh, are teaching a series on spiritual authority and dominion. And uh, we're using Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 as kind of a beginning point or jumping off point for um, most of the services that we've had in this series. I, um, uh, I want to cover some things that we've already talked about but go a little bit deeper in, uh, uh, in, in some of these areas. I um, mentioned early on in the series that I really didn't have a, a plan or an outline for, uh, for these series and what I'd be teaching and so forth. Um, I think I even made the, the comment that um, a good title for this series might be Observations on Authority or Dominion because I, there are some things that I'm beginning to see in a different way, um, a fuller way, I don't know if that's a good way, a more full way, whatever the right way to say that is, than, uh, than I ever have before. And, uh, and as such, it seems like the more I meditate on it and the more I talk about it, the bigger it gets. It's, uh, it's to the point right now where everything in the Bible looks like authority to me. Have you ever done that? You're studying on something so much that, it, that you see it in every verse and behind every rock, so to speak. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, tells us the story of creation and it says in verse 26 and God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over all the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth the words image and likeness literally in the original Hebrew uh, the word likeness uh, in the original Hebrew literally means an exact duplication of kind or in kind. Everything uh, that God made, the Bible says, he made it after its own kind. It had the seed in itself and it was made after its own kind. And it says that God made the earth and made man in his own kind. I, uh, I started off saying that, is, that, uh, that God made man as close to an exact duplication of himself as, as possible. And the Lord really checked me on that. I said that uh, a couple of weeks in a row. And the Lord really checked me on that. And he said, I thought you believed that all things are possible with me. That kind of caught me off guard. And I said, well, Lord, all things are possible with you. The word says so. And he says, then why do you keep saying as close as possible? And I didn't have a good answer for that. So when the Bible says God made man after his image and in his likeness, or in his image and after his likeness, it literally means God made him an exact duplicate of himself. And it tells us what God's plan was for man. God never changes. So if this was God's original intent, it's still his intent. He made man an exact duplicate of himself so that he would have dominion over all the earth. Now, it's an indisputable fact. It's overlooked by much of the church world. But it's an indisputable fact according to the word of God. That God intended man to have dominion and he created him for that purpose. Now there's a verse of scripture. You can turn there if you want to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. I'll read it to you. It's in Psalm 115 verse 16. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Psalm 115 verse 16 says this. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. But the earth has he given to the children of men. Well, that's saying the same thing, isn't it? It's saying God made man to have dominion on the earth. Now, he gave man specific instruction. We'll read in the next couple of verses in Genesis 1. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Notice that's male and female and not 31 different varieties. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Replenish, the word replenish seems to indicate there was something here before Adam was created. He didn't say populate the earth, he said replenish the earth. Replenish means to resupply or to repopulate. So he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. The word subdue it Literally means to keep it under your control. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, we know what happened. We know that, uh, that chapter 3 tells us about the fall of man and how Satan came in on the scene and usurped his authority. But before the fall, according to the, if the Bible is, is literal, and we certainly should expect it to be unless uh, it indicates to us otherwise. If the Bible is literal, then that means that God intended for man and created man to be the God or the ruler of this world. Well, we know that changed. Because now the Bible tells us in the New Testament, Paul wrote to the church, the Corinthian church, and said that Satan is now the God of this world. Now, when he said the God of this world, he doesn't mean the God of creation. He means the God of this world system. This world system will come to an end. And when this world system comes to an end, so will Satan's reign over that system. So there's a period of time, and his time is running out. But there is a period of time that Satan is the God or the ruler over this world system, this present world system. But God intended man to be the ruler of the system, the world system, not the one that we have now, but the world system that he created and looked at and said that it was very good, it was perfect, there was nothing that was out of order or could hurt or harm man in any way whatsoever. He intended man to be that, the ruler of that system. Could we say, I put this out for just a suggestion for you to consider, could we say that God's original intent and what he created in the earth that was perfect he looked at it and said it was very good. There was nothing to harm man. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no weeds in the grass. No flies, no mosquitoes, no fleas. Nothing whatsoever that we would consider to be imperfect in any measure whatsoever. Could we not say that that was the kingdom of God on the earth? Well, it was certainly the system that God created. So we'd be accurate in that sense. It was certainly the way that God wanted things to be. So we'd be accurate in, in describing it as the kingdom of God in that sense. Is there any way or any characteristic of what God created that would not fit the definition or the description of the kingdom of God on the earth? I, I can't find one. I can't find any reason to call the original system that God created anything other than the kingdom of God on the earth. Well, we know what happened. We know that Satan tricked Eve. The Bible says she was deceived, but he was not. He, meaning Adam, was not deceived. And then Satan became the God of this world. Now, we've looked at some scriptures previously, and if you want to look there again and, and refresh your memory, you can, but it's in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And it tells us information about Satan or Lucifer before his rebellion when he was working in concert with God according to God's order and purpose. And then those scriptures, those chapters give us scriptures that identify that Lucifer was a person with authority here on the earth. Now this was a world apparently that existed before the world becomes without form and void in Genesis 1-2. Peter talks about the world that was, that existed before the creation account as being overflowed or destroyed by water. Well, that fits the description in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without or became, literally became without form and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. So that world was destroyed by water we don't have any particulars about it or any other information other than that. But it was a place where Satan, who was then known as Lucifer, had authority and apparently had a great deal of authority. Now when the creation account comes along and God creates man in his own image and after his likeness an exact duplicate in kind, the angels, according to Hebrews 2 and Psalm 8, the angels are marveling. God's creation. The angels question and say, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You've crowned him with loving kindness and tender mercy, glory and honor, and made him to have dominion over all the works of your hands. 
the angels are shocked. Now, stop and think about what that might mean. What could, what would make man different than anything that existed before? Angels are created beings. So what is it about man? We know that angels had authority. Lucifer had authority, used that authority to rebel against God. So it's not man's authority that makes him different. It's not that he's a created being that has a special place with God that makes him different. What is it about the creation of Adam that causes the angels to marvel? Well, I want to put something out for your consideration. God made man to have a body. We don't have any record in the scripture in any way whatsoever that Lucifer or any of the angels ever had a physical body. Now, consider it from this standpoint. God knows when he makes man and puts him in the earth that there's an enemy, once called Lucifer, now called Satan, that's been cast out into the earth. God doesn't clear the earth of the enemy of man or God's enemy for that matter. He doesn't clear the earth of of Satan. He doesn't send Satan in some other place. He puts his greatest creation, man, right in the middle of where Satan has been cast out into. Right in the very place that was destroyed, according to scripture, by Lucifer's operations. After the rebellion or during during and after the rebellion against God and two-thirds of the angels. My point is very simply this. It seems from scripture, unless I'm misreading something, it seems from scripture that angels, specifically Lucifer, had authority on the earth as a spirit being, a created spirit being. What makes man different? He's a created spirit being too, but he has a body. Now we know that when Lucifer came, uh, well, once Lucifer, now Satan, When Satan comes to tempt Eve, he has one purpose in mind, and that is he's trying to steal the authority that God has given unto mankind. Now, in order to to interact with Adam and Eve, Satan has to take upon himself some kind of body. He can't interact unless he operates through some kind of physical means or physical body. Now, Adam doesn't have to look for a physical body to exercise authority. Could it be that the physical body that God made for man formed out of the dust of the earth before he breathed into him the breath of life and it became a living soul? Could it be that that physical body is what gives man authority here on the earth? See, in that sense, everything the devil does is according to his original operation which is to steal authority from man. When he brings sickness and disease against us, he's trying to steal our authority over sickness. When he brings sin, when he's able to cause us to fall into sin, in that sense, he's trying to steal our authority to resist sin. When he brings poverty and lack against us, he's trying to steal our authority for the abundance that Jesus purchased through his death on the cross. I told you I'm seeing authority in everything that there is. It seems, at least in that sense, there may be other ways that we can look at it, but at least in that sense, everything the devil does is to steal man's authority. Jesus said that the devil came for one purpose, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. What does he do if he's able to take someone's life prematurely before God is... Fulfilled his plan for their lives and they lived out the full length of their days. What happens when the body dies? You have to leave the earth. So he's robbed you of the exercise of your authority. How does he steal from us? Well, he wants to rob us and keep us, prevent us from operating in the blessings of God that Jesus purchased for us. That's stealing our authority in whatever area that is that he brings his attack. How does he try to destroy us? He tries to destroy us 
by keeping us from operating in the fullness of the measure of the authority that God has provided for us through the work of Jesus. In that sense, and as I said, there may be other ways to look at it, but in that sense, everything the devil does is trying to steal man's authority, which was his original work in the earth to begin with. Are you with me? Well, the Bible tells us about how God created the earth. It tells us 10 times in Genesis chapter 1 that God looked at the situation and said. Now, there's only one reason that the Bible would tell us that in the way that it does. It would be very easy for God to to just have dictated to Moses. And I said, let there be this, let there be that, let there be that, and make a list of 10 things. But God specifically instructed Moses, dictated to Moses, 10 different times, 10 different verses, or within a number of verses, 10 different times, where God says of himself and God said. Now, we see God's creative power, or can we say it this way, the exercise of God's power toward creation. He's using his power, he's using his authority as the creator of the earth, to recreate a place for man, to recreate the system that we've described as the kingdom of God on the earth. There's only one reason for him to do it the way that he did, and that is to show us that the exercise of authority is through the speaking of words. It's interesting to note that in Genesis 1-2, it says the earth became without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. Most of the time, we have the idea that if we can just get the presence of God on the scene, then everything will work out right. But the presence of God was on the scene in Genesis 1-2. Yet nothing happened until words were spoken. Nothing happened until God's authority as the creator and therefore the owner of the earth spoke his intent and said, Light be. This is a pattern that's intended for us to see and understand that this is how authority works. Now, it's also interesting to note that when Adam lost his authority, well, let me me back up a little bit. I've often wondered, what was it that that was such a temptation to Eve? Now, the Bible says, we sometimes think of it differently, but the Bible indicates that when the serpent talked to Eve, when Satan took upon himself the form of a serpent, and we don't know if that's literally a snake, the the serpent is referred to as uh, uh, specifically as the hissing sound that a snake makes. In other words, it has more to do with the voice than anything else. So we've got an idea and, and get a mental picture that there was a snake that walked on four legs and that kind of thing. That may not be true. The important thing was the voice that was speaking to to Eve. Now, God had said, made a commandment and said that all the trees of the Garden of Eden were good for them to eat. But there was one that they were forbidden to eat of. And that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Amplified Bible says the tree of the knowledge of blessing and and calamity. What was it when Satan came and said to Eve... He questioned first, well, let's just read it. Rather than me quote around it, let's just read it. In Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a pleasant, was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Notice she didn't have to run off somewhere and find Adam and give him some too. He was right there. And she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, what was the temptation? 
What is it that they're trying to gain? What is it that the devil is saying that the fruit of that tree, the forbidden fruit, is going to provide for them beyond what they already have? They're already the gods of the world. Now, I don't have any any doubt whatsoever that Adam and Eve recognized the difference between the authority that God had given them as created beings as being much different than the power of God as the creator of the universe. I wonder, and I don't know one way or the other, I don't know if we can prove it one way or the other, maybe it's not important, but it makes me wonder if they thought that when Satan said you'll be like God's, if they thought that they would be elevated to a creative power position. I don't know. But since they would have some kind of indication of what good and evil were, if nothing more than the definition of the words, why would they want that? I mean, the knowledge of good is what they had already. They're producing good by the fruit of their lips. They're exercising authority in the earth by the fruit of their lips, the words that they speak. That's working out pretty well for them, isn't it? There's nothing that can harm anybody. It's producing only good, and everything that produces is producing just like God produced. What is it that they're, they're going for? What's the temptation? I don't have an answer, folks. But it was something that she thought is worth doing. Now, do you remember over in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? We spent a little bit of time there a few minutes ago where God said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and keep it under your control. The word subdue means to keep under your control. If there is nothing in the earth, the system that God created, the kingdom of God on the earth, if there is nothing that can hurt or harm man, that means there's no tree in the garden that was created that won't produce fruit. That means there's no weeds that are going to grow in the grass or in the flower beds. There's nothing that will get out of order because God created after his own kind and God's the God of perfect order. What is there to subdue? There's only one thing possible in my thinking that there is to subdue and that is the enemy that's been cast into the earth where God has recreated the environment and the kingdom of God for man. Now think about what that means for a minute where it says be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it, keep it under your control. Think about what that does not mean. That would certainly mean that God is not saying If things get out of line, call me and I'll put them back in order. It can also not mean, it can't mean that God is saying, now things are going to get out of whack from time to time. So you're going to have to learn to just be patient and accept things the way they are because you know life is full of disappointments. No, instead... When he gives him the instruction to subdue the earth, God knows whether Adam knows or not. God knows there's only one place for him to exercise his authority to keep the earth under his control. And that is in relation to the enemy of God that's been cast into the earth. That's the only thing he can use his authority to keep under control. Now, let me ask you this. Why does Adam let, let Satan have his say and reason with his wife. Adam has authority to keep the earth under his control. Now, I'm not sure exactly. I'm hesitant to, to come right out and say it, but I can certainly see the possibility. But I'm not sure how far his authority went, but it's certainly possible that Adam could have told Satan to leave the earth and never return. If he's got authority over the earth, then whatever he forbids here on the earth has to be, will be backed up in heaven. 
it's possible that he could have instructed Satan to leave, not just leave the garden, but leave off any contact with man at forever. And he could have kept the earth under his control in God's perfect order. If that's not possible, if it was not possible for him to cause, uh, cause Satan to leave the earth, he could at least have sent him off to some corner of the earth that was uninhabited and would have remained uninhabited. He could have put Satan in jail in the earth in some way or another as the ruler of everything that God created. Now, I don't think we can call that sin, call the fact that Adam did not exercise authority over the devil and keep it under his control. I don't think we can call that sin, but it certainly is instructive for us what happens at least the potential for what can happen when we do not exercise our authority, God-given authority in the earth. So now God's locked out. Man has fallen. The instruction that God gave was if you eat of the forbidden tree in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Adam didn't die that day physically, so he can't be talking about physical death. And he didn't really even die spiritually that day. He died that instant. It wasn't a protracted thing. It was an instant result. He instantly died spiritually, was separated from God, which is what spiritual death means. Now, notice in chapter 3, it says, after they ate, verse 7 And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? First time God's ever had to look for him. And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Folks, I want you to understand something. Here's what the law of sin and death does. The Bible says in Romans 5, 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, speaking of Adam, one man's sin, sin entered the world and death by sin. The death is talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death passed upon all men. It was an instantaneous thing. The first thing that the Bible tells us about in association with spiritual death, what Paul calls in Romans 8, 2, the law of sin and death. The first thing that's attached to the law of sin and death, according to the scripture, is fear. Fear of what? Fear of God's voice. Now, up until this point in time, up until they fall, man is created full-grown, He's created with a full intellect. He has no experience in the earth because it's brand new to him. But he has the kind of intellect that's able to, to name the animals and converse with God on a level of equality. God made him exact duplication in kind of himself. Well, where did Adam's intelligence come from? He didn't go to school. Where did his intelligence, his intellect, and his knowledge come from? It came from his spirit. It was a part of what God breathed on the inside of him. So let's say it this way. Since we associate knowledge with experience, Adam's intellect is a result of the wisdom of God and not experienced through his five physical senses. But now he becomes self-aware according to the information that his five physical senses are providing him. Adam and Eve know that they saw, recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed. So they made something to cover themselves. Now, in explaining to God why they're hiding, he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Notice God's question. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? Who told you you were naked? Now, notice that God doesn't say, oh, you're not really naked. 
He didn't deny the, the, the circumstance. But Adam becomes aware of an irrelevant fact. And his awareness of the irrelevant fact that comes through his five physical senses causes him to turn away from and separate himself from the one that created him, the one that's shown love to him. Folks, the spirit of this world, the law of sin and death, will always try to make you be afraid of the voice of God. And if you yield to your five physical senses, the circumstances around you that are influenced and in many cases controlled by the enemy will cause you to run from God instead of run to him. So God pronounces the curse upon the earth and upon Adam and Eve. He cursed the serpent and said, because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon your belly shall you go. And thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now I want you to notice that God talks about enmity or conflict. Opposition between Satan's seed and the seed of a woman. Now medical science tells us the woman has no seed. The woman produces the egg and the egg is fertilized by the man's sperm which is the seed that enables a a natural birth to take place. But God talks about the seed of a woman. So he said, I'll put enmity between your seed, Satan, and the woman's seed. And it, we know it's talking about Jesus, but it's not just talking about Jesus. And it, her seed, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I want you to notice that God is setting up things for his plan of redemption. He's telling Satan what his destruction is going to be. He's saying it will be the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. Because as we said before, Romans 5.12 talks about Adam's sin causing spiritual death to pass upon all men. In other words, the seed of every man, every man born naturally into this earth, is born into that law of sin and death. That's why this, the, the virgin birth was such an important issue. And here's what God is, is identifying even in the Garden of Eden at the fall. He's saying, I'll bypass the law of sin and death that you've now brought upon all man, all of mankind. I'll bypass that and create a man that has legal entry into the world. Remember, we looked at John chapter 10 where Jesus spends a great deal of time talking about the thief comes through the sheepfold into the earth, in other words, illegally. But he came in a legal manner. It's interesting that God puts such, goes to such detail. Now, it takes a longer time. But he goes to such great detail to handle everything in a legal manner. I think that's a good characteristic for us to develop because it's easy to cut corners. God could have, if he was not righteous, God could have come down when Satan was tempting Eve, stepped in, knocked the fruit out of her hand and said, wait a minute. This is not the way this is going to go. Now, what would that have meant? That would have meant that he didn't really give them authority in the earth. That would have meant that man's authority was not according to his will and choice, his free will and choice, but only as long as he did what God wanted him to do. It would have meant that man was a puppet and not a creative being with real authority over the earth. After the fall, God could have, as the creator and owner of the earth, he could have stepped in and said, okay, this is, this is it. This is not going the way I wanted it to at all. Adam, Eve, sorry, you had your chance. 
I'm going to wipe you out and start all over again. But folks, you need to understand something. When God gave man authority or dominion over the earth, over the work of all of his hands, he gave man the, the right and the ability to make a choice according to his own will, even if it was the wrong choice. There are several times throughout the history of mankind that God has placed everything in the hands of a man. This was one of them. And they made the wrong choice. It was certainly not the will of God for them to make the choice that they made. Of course, God being omnipotent and all-knowing saw ahead of time what what they would do. And already had a plan for redemption. But he's got to do something to prepare the way for that redemption. We're here in chapter 3 again. He continues to pronounce the curse. Notice it. Skip down to verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Folks, I want you to understand something. That's not a complete sentence. Now, remember, God is dictating this word for word, literally Hebrew letter by Hebrew letter to Moses. So this is God dictating to Moses, and he interrupts himself before he finishes his own sentence. So he says, therefore... Um, Well, let's read verse 22 again. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Remind me to come back and talk about that good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep or preserve the way of the tree of life. Something is interesting to notice here. Immortality is not the equivalent of eternal life. We think of eternal life as longevity. God is trying to prevent man from staying, becoming immortal in a spiritually dead condition. He does not want man to live forever. This is his mercy in operation. He doesn't want man to live forever. In his fallen state. Now don't you know. That Satan who now has influence over mankind. Don't you know that he would love. To direct Adam and Eve to the tree of life. If he has any knowledge whatsoever. And we would have to assume that he does. That it provides immortality. If he could have done that. Then he could have robbed man. From fellowship. Well, a better way to say it would be rob the creator, God, from fellowship with his man for all time. Now, now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about this a little bit. What was the temptation there? Well, we've surmised what part of the temptation may be, and that may be right. Well, I may be way off off base, but I, I just can't come up with anything else than what I said. But what happened when God said man has become like one of us to know good and evil? Well, he already knew God or knew good because that's what God had placed within him. What was the evil that he knew? Well, James chapter 3 tells us about how the tongue is set on fire of the course of hell. It's full of deadly poison. No man can tame it. It's an unruly evil, the Bible says. The Bible says if you want to control the whole body, the key is to control your tongue. In other words, man lost control of his tongue. Before the fall, the only thing that he spoke was what he knew, and the source of all of his knowledge was the life of God on the inside of it. So it's certainly not a stretch to say the only thing that he spoke was the word of God that was revealed to him. And it produced after its own kind. Whatever he did speak, whatever he did say, his words produced perfectly, just like God's did, because he's an exact duplicate in kind with God. 
But at the fall, he loses control of his tongue. Now his tongue is influenced and dominated by his five physical senses. That's how he knows evil. So what does he do? He begins to speak things contrary to the word of God, according to his five physical senses. And because he still has authority on the earth, he was created to have dominion on the earth, his words come to pass. So he speaks calamity and it occurs. He speaks evil, or shall we say sows evil into the world, and he reaps evil as a result. Again, you can see the power of the tongue in the exercise of authority. So what does God do? God begins making covenants with man. He makes a covenant with Noah. Then he comes to Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham. Now his covenant with Abraham extends over about a 25-year period. And it is a progressive covenant. God keeps making additional promises to Abraham as Abraham learns to trust him more and more and more. Finally, it gets to the place in Genesis chapter 15 where God makes a blood covenant with him. Now, blood or the shedding of blood represents life. By the time Abraham makes the blood covenant with God, God is literally saying, we're now committing everything about ourselves to each other. Now, covenant has to be a a mutually exclusive thing. In other words, both both parties have to be equally committed. I don't know if that's if I use the right term mutually exclusive may not be the right way but I'm trying to say each one has to be equally committed to the other and so God commits all of himself and all of his power to mankind through uh, through Abraham and Abraham's seed now who determines the limits of the covenant between God and Abraham it can't be God now if the covenant was a heavenly covenant then God could be the one that determines the limits. But Abraham's not in heaven. This is a covenant that God is making with mankind to gain access through the fall, through spiritual death coming upon mankind. God's locked out from his man, his creation. And because he was serious and truly gave man authority and dominion over the earth, he has to be invited in by a man in order to to operate on his behalf. So he begins making covenants. These covenants give him a legal means for interacting into the earth and the affairs of men. When he comes to the place where he makes a blood covenant with Abraham, he's saying this can extend as far as everything that we own for the benefit of one another. Well, we see the physical benefits accruing to Abraham. God makes him rich. We see Abraham's trust in increasing when he defeats the five kings and won't take any of the spoil because he didn't want anybody to say that God, anything other than God made him rich. Being known as, as God's man is more important to him than the stuff. At age 100, he has the child of promise. He believes for the impossible because of the years of experience he's had with God, finding God faithful. And Sarah, at age 90, gives birth to Isaac, the child that was promised some 24 years earlier. You would think that that would be the end Of everything that Abraham wanted. But then it brings us to chapter 22 of Genesis. Where God tells Abraham. When Isaac is probably about 17 years old. Which means that Abraham has been walking with God for about 40 years. God tells him to offer him as a sacrifice. Now Abraham obeys God. No hesitation, no questions. It tells us Abraham's thinking behind it. Abraham has come to realize God's faithfulness and the truth of God's word, no matter how 
God speaks or what he tells him to do. And so it says that Abraham comes to the the place in his own mind, in his own conviction, where he knows that since Isaac has been promised to be the seed that gives birth to generations of people, that if God has to raise him from the dead, then he will. Now, what is God doing? What's the purpose? The, the, The offering of Isaac as a sacrifice always bugged me. Because the Bible says that God told Moses, as part of the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is, thou shalt not kill. Well, when did God come up with that commandment? See, if he's telling Abraham to kill Isaac, which some people think that he is, then that makes God a sinner. That means he's tempting evil, tempting Abraham with evil, which James says God cannot do. But he is tempting him. He is proving him. There's no question about that. But what's the temptation? The temptation is very simply this. God knows that he'll stop Abraham from killing Isaac. He knows that Isaac's life is not in danger. Abraham doesn't know that. God knows that, however. And so he's trying to prove Abraham so that he can identify and set the boundaries or the limits of the covenant between himself and his man. Now, if God had come to Abraham and said, listen, Abraham, Isaac's 17 years old now, and and I know how much you love him. And you know the promises that I've made. And and because of those promises, he's going to have children. Boy, he's going to have a bunch of them. Generations will come from him that will bless the world. So you know he's going to live. But if I asked you to kill him, would you? Well, under those circumstances, Abraham would say, well, sure. Of course, knowing there is no danger, knowing there is no threat. So there's only one way that God can test the limits of Abraham's commitment to him, to, to him, to God. And that is to give him the opportunity without explanation to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. God said specifically, offer him as a sacrifice. He didn't say kill him. He said, offer him as a sacrifice, which is exactly what Abraham does. They travel three days distance the mountain God tells them to go to. They take all the stuff. He and uh, Isaac and Abraham were the only ones that go up on top of the mountain. Isaac questions his father and says, we've got everything except the lamb. What are we going to do about that? Where's the sacrifice? Abraham prophesies, probably without knowledge of what he's doing or what he's really saying, but he says in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Well, he does. So he raises the knife. He prepares everything and raises the knife to Isaac's throat. And then the angel speaks and says, don't hurt him. Now, let me read to you what God says the purpose of this was. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord says, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know. Here's the phrase I want you to see. Here's what God's purpose was in the whole thing. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now what's happened here is that God has given Abraham the opportunity to set the limits for the covenant. Abraham has to be the one that does it. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus talks about the church. He says, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Every time the Bible talks about authority, man's authority, it talks about the origination of that authority on the earth and heaven backing you up, not the other way around. So much of the church world is waiting for God to reveal his will by acting or doing something when the Bible says it's just the opposite That was the way that God set it up. So Abraham has to be the one to set the limits of the covenant. Well, what limits does he set? It's an unlimited limit. Abraham is willing to offer his own son, the son of promise. And God literally says and responds to him, because you've done this, several things will accrue. First of all, because you've not withheld your son, Now, I'm obligated 
because we're equally committed in this to offer my son for you. Now, I said before that there were several points in time where God placed the whole thing in the hands of man. Here's one of those times. What if Abraham had failed to follow through? God could not legally have provided his son to be a sacrifice for man. Everything hung in the balance on this thing, folks. God found a man he could trust. And the Bible says, and he believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That phrase means so much more than we give it credit for. It literally means that Abraham was willing to do whatever God said to do, no matter how far-fetched it was, or no matter what it seemed like the results would be. And God said, now I know that you fear God. That means now I know you have respect unto me and unto my word, and you'll do whatever I tell you to do. Everything hung in the balance. And then he says something else. He says of his seed. Verse 16. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for behold, thou hast done this thing and has not withheld thy son, thine only son. That in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Notice this phrase. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. What is he talking about? Well, it has a double meaning here. It means the, the, uh, the children of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, will have authority and walk in blessing and dominion over their enemies. But it's really talking about Jesus. The Bible talks about Christ being the seed of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. This is saying... That because of Abraham's actions with his son Isaac, his willingness to offer his son Isaac, it's saying that he opened the door for God to provide Jesus, his son, as the sacrifice for mankind to defeat the enemy on his own territory. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 16, upon the knowledge that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, he shall possess the seed of his enemies. He shall possess the seed of his enemies. Now, I'm way out of time here, so let me run through this real quickly. I'll find a stopping point. The Bible says in Amos, Amos prophesied that the Lord will do nothing except he reveal it to his prophets first. Why? Why does God not do anything without telling the prophet first? Well, what's the purpose for the prophet? The prophet is intended to speak for God. So whatever God reveals to the prophets is for the purpose of the prophet speaking out God's revelation. In other words, speaking God's word for the intent of inviting God to do exactly what he said. Remember, man is the one that has authority on the earth. So it's through our words, it's through the words of a man that invites God to do what he wants him to do and what he's willing to do. So he reveals his word under the prophets so that the prophets can speak so that God can do exactly what the prophet said God would do. Notice how God is operating legally. He's not usurping man's authority. So much of the church world... The Bible says that on the seventh day God rested, he made an end of the work that he did. Most of the church has been praying for God to work ever since. But the Bible says God's through with his work. Now any work that he does on the earth will be because of the, the invitation of man who's been given authority here on the earth. This is exactly what happens with the virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says... That a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, God spoke to a prophet and said, here's what God will do. Now, once a prophet speaks on behalf of God, by the revelation of God, it's not just the words of a prophet, but the inspired words of a prophet given that inspiration being given by God himself. Once a prophet or any other person on the earth speaks the word of God, 
it invites God and enables God to do exactly what he intended to do and why he said he would, why he spoke the word to begin with. Then he finds a woman, Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel appears unto Mary and says, Mary, you're highly favored. God wants to use you. He wants you to give birth, to conceive and give birth to the son that God intends to be the savior of mankind. She asks a question. It's not unbelief. She's just asking, how can that work? She may be saying, Gabriel, I don't know what you're like in angel land, but down here you got to be with a man. And I haven't been. How can this happen? Well, he explains. He said, the Holy Ghost shall overshadow you. And that baby that is conceived in your womb shall be called the Son of God. So what does she say? She says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me even as thou hast spoken. In other words, she says, I'm willing. That's all God needed. He's already spoken what his purpose is, and that is for a virgin to give birth. All he needs to find is a virgin that's willing, and she's the one. Now, what I want you to understand, folks, is that when she speaks and says, be it unto me according to your word, she's opening the door for the power of God to do the impossible. This is the same thing the centurion did in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion had the servant that was sick and went to Jesus or sent somebody to Jesus and said, I need you to heal my servant. So Jesus said, I'll come to your house and do it. The centurion sends word and says, you don't have to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I know how authority works. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. What's he doing? He's exercising his authority toward his servant to receive from God. Jesus says, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. The implication is I should have found it everywhere in Israel. But I haven't found it anywhere in Israel. What's happening in both situations with Mary and with the centurion? You've got a man, and in Mary's case, a woman, exercising authority to receive what God has already indicated that he's willing to do. That's how all of it works, folks. It works by you and I speaking not according to what our five physical senses tell us, not according to what we can see and feel, but speaking according to what God has already declared, the truth of the word of God that is eternal, unchanging, and cannot lie. When we speak and utilize our authority through our words, it enables God to do what he's already said that he's willing to do and provided for. And it works that way every time. It works that way every time. Now we're going to have to renew our minds to accept God's word to be truth no matter what our five physical senses tell us. But if we'll do that, there's nothing that God won't do on behalf of his man or his woman here on the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you have given us authority, real authority here on the earth. What happens here on the earth or what happens in our lives is not so much a a function of what you want to happen as what we allow to happen. There's no reason for us to question why you allowed things. You told us very clearly that you'll allow what we'll allow and you'll forbid what we forbid. Thank you, Father for the privilege that we have to exercise authority over the evil one, to exercise authority over sickness and disease, over poverty and lack, over every evil thing. Lord, we say, even as Mary said, be it unto us, even as you have spoken. Thank you, Father, that we have the wisdom of God from our spirits and not just from our minds so that we can operate according to your plan and purpose and see your power demonstrated in the earth and in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Say this after me. I have authority over all the works of the devil. What I say 
in my life goes. God backs me up. Therefore, I can have the kingdom of God, God's will in heaven, in operation here, in my life, on the earth. My words carry power. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you for sticking with us. I apologize for going long. You're dismissed.